0: futureprimitive.org. I am sitting here today with a wonderful woman, Patricia Flash. Tell you now a little bit about Patricia Flash. First of all, she has written and recently published a book called Becoming a Love Dog, From Emptiness to Tenderness. Patricia Flash has always been fascinated by the discovery of the soul. Her career as counselor, mentor, coach and soul friend began when she was nine years old and her friends and neighbors would come by her house and pay her a nickel for her talents. (laughs) Given her passion for how people connect, Patricia earned her bachelor's degree in communications and after she received a master's in counseling from the University of Wisconsin. Patricia entered a human potential training program called Cornucopia in Kentucky and became a national seminar leader and the marketing director of that organization. As usual, I could say a lot about the person I am with. I want to say that uh, she's a coach and she has led many, many workshops all over the United States. Uh, Her lifelong spiritual purpose is to reveal the presence of grace to soul seekers through private counseling workshops and writing. Now, Patricia, my first question to you will be about your book Becoming a Love Dog. (laughs) Would you speak about that? Yes, I'd be happy to.
1: First of all, that title came directly out of a a Rumi poem um, where he says, there are love dogs and there are love dogs. Give your life to be one of them. A dog's moaning for its master is the master. And so, being a love dog, in my simple translation, would be someone who cares so much about matters of their own soul, that those soul matters have become the essential
0: ingredient of their life. So that's where it all began. Okay. So, the matters of their soul have become the passion of their life. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's it. And. While you were writing Becoming a Love Dog, what is it that your heart wanted most to convey to the people who will read it?
1: I wanted most to convey that there are ways that one can come to know oneself deeply and with great heart. And by coming to know oneself deeply and with great heart, then that is how we touch other people. And I wanted to convey that there is a possibility that we can work through our patterns, our issues, our
0: unconsciousness, so that we can show up heart to heart. I've always been very uh, amused by the title of one of your workshops. One of your workshops is called Leaving Your Patterns and Not Your Partners. That's right. And it's also the title of my next book. Oh, it yeah. is. Well, would you yeah. speak about that? And then we'll yeah. go back to Love Dog. Okay. So, uh, in terms
1: of patterns, um, I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, my father died when I was nine years old in an industrial accident, so that all my relationships with men look like um, a a sudden death,
0: uh-huh.
1: and because uh, that's what was in my that's what was still registering in my cells, basically what I was trying to work out. And now I'm in a, a marriage that's 25 years. And um, I no longer have the need to act out the pattern of repeating my father's dying. Um, But I don't mean I've left the pattern behind entirely. What I mean is that it walks alongside me, and I work with it, and I forgive it, and I'm open to it. So I have befriended that pattern. And so the workshop is all about how you befriend your
0: patterns so that you don't have to break up your relationships if you don't want to. Right. Well, let's go straight to the subject of self-compassion. Okay. It has appeared to me by reading your book that this is a very important treasure in who you are Mm -hmm. and what you convey to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Would you like me to say more about self-compassion? Yes, I would like you to
1: speak a lot
0: about (laughs) self-compassion. Okay, Okay.
1: all right. Uh, So first of all, self-compassion is something that I'm working with every day, pretty much the whole day. It's not. It's sort of like mercury in your hands. It's not you have it or you don't have it. it it's movable. It's alive. And um, I feel like I either am in a state of self-compassion, as are we, or when I'm not self-compassionate, that lack of compassion is moving me back towards self-compassion. So that when I'm really harsh with myself or unforgiving, or um, unkind, that that unkindness and that harshness, the pain of that is actually drawing me towards resolution so that I can step into self-compassion once again. And by becoming more compassionate for myself, I'll just say an example today. I was getting a massage mm-hmm. um, with Ivan Block, who has been my massage therapist for a long time. Okay. And I was noticing as he was working on my body, everything just felt. Re- I mean, even when he was doing, re- he's does really deep work. Mm-hmm. It just felt so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of late I've been doing a lot of forgiveness for my body, so that the massage actually didn't hurt the deep work, mm-hmm. because there's so much forgiveness going on in my body now that I could relax into it, even more deeply.
0: Is this making sense? Well, I'd like you to uh, speak about. Because I think it's very important because a lot of us, um, maybe especially women, I, I don't know, don't like their bodies or would like their bodies to be different. So what do you mean by forgiveness for your body? So what I mean, for example, um, is
1: I'm often walking by windows or mirrors looking at my poochy stomach, you know, mm-hmm. like, is it, is it hanging out two inches today or an inch and a half or three inches? And then I have kind of two stomachs, one under my breast and then the other one under my belt, and so I'm always looking at how I'm kind of like a three-layered uh-huh. series of bumps, <laughs> and then judging that, you know, really judging that. Like, gosh, I don't know, maybe I spend 30 minutes to an hour a day yeah. having this background music going on about my stomach. I can relate. And so mm. by applying um, self-forgiveness to that, which I do in the form of Ho'oponopono, yes. which we can come back to we if you like, I notice that what's going on is that I look in the mirror and I just say, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> you, have those th- you have those three lumps, three-tiered lumps. It's really precious. Right. And often when I'm um, doing self-forgiveness, I place my ha- hands on my tummy. Uh-huh. And I think, well, wow, Gosh, a whole life of self-rejecting about whether your tummy is sticking out an inch or two or not. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. And it's such a blessing to be able to say, you know, it's all right if it sticks out. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's just your tummy. Mm-hmm. And so that self-forgiveness makes a more intimate relationship with me and my body. My body hasn't changed.
0: But the way I'm loving it has changed. Okay, so that brings us back to tenderness. Yeah. Would you uh, equate, would you say that forgiveness is a component of tenderness? Yeah, I would say they're sisters. They're sisters. Yeah. What would be the other components of tenderness? My favorite Mm -hmm. subject.
1: Uh, Let's see. (laughs) Um... Uh, Well, I was realizing when I was... I I didn't really prepare for this interview, but I did have one thought. You probably asked me what tenderness is. Yes. And I thought, uh, well, tenderness is my way of life. Mm -hmm. It's not really something I'm doing. It's a way that I'm learning to be, and it's in every aspect of my life. And um, another way to work with self-compassion or tenderness is to... uh, Something I do is something called Centering Prayer, where I spend 20 minutes twice a day um, with the word tenderness and the concept of tenderness and allowing myself to have tender feelings and reminding myself where tenderness is in my life. And so that brings me more towards tenderness. And also the times that I'm not tender are just as helpful because the pain that comes when I'm waking up in the morning and going, oh boy, I had a bad dream and and then I judge myself for that. Oh, that was so far from tender, <laughs> you know. Being away from tenderness actually draws me. The pain of being away from being tender draws me back into tenderness. I think I forgot your central question.
0: Well, what was, else is an aspect? Yes, what else is an aspect of tenderness? What are so self-compassion would be another sister mm-hmm. of tenderness, right? And you know, another sister would be.
1: Um, instead of thinking that I'm going to lose that 10 pounds so I don't have those three layers, or I'm going to love myself later, you know, after I, whatever it is I think I'm supposed mm-hmm. to be doing, mm-hmm. make more money, have a flat stomach, right. um, uh, have my relationship be smooth yeah. rather than uneven sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to love myself then, being aware, know that now is the time. Is it possible for me to love myself while my relationship is sometimes uneven, my stomach is bumpy, and maybe I want more. I want uh, our home in British Columbia to be rented while it's on the market. Can I love myself right, right there in that um, uneasy moment?
0: Patricia uh, uh, Milton Erickson has said, "I don't think the therapist does anything but provide a context to think about the problem in a favorable climate." Would you Can you relate to that? Yes. I think my, the way that
1: I produce or offer a favorable clim, climate is, first of all, I am a love dog. And so I am, I am meeting people in that love dog energy. Um, and then also uh, Ho'oponopono, that Hawaiian practice of saying to yourself, I'm sorry and I love you, which I do frequently when I'm with clients, is I'm, um, I am embracing the parts of them that perhaps they have not yet accepted in themselves, and that allows them to have a much bigger range of acceptance. So I do agree.
0: Would you be willing to um, quickly tell the story of Oho Pono Pono and how it relates to how you work mm-hmm. and uh, perhaps to what is in your book? Mm-hmm. Of course.
1: Okay, so this is my version of the story. Yes, it's also available on uh, on uh, www.hooponopono.com, and uh, the story is that several years ago the Hawaiian state prison system was breaking down with the most violent criminals, and so they put an, um, an you know a bulletin out and asked for help from the state of Hawaii and the rest of the country because they didn't know what to do because psychologists were quitting. Cleaning staff wouldn't stay on. Uh, the prison was really breaking down. And a man who was in, uh, was a recluse and had been in seclusion for some time somehow got word of this and offered his services. His name was Dr. Hu Ling. Dr. Hu Ling is a Hawaiian shaman and a clinical psychologist. And uh, w- the way that he decided to work with prisoners was that he took their files. He never met them. He took their files and sat and forgave in himself whatever he noticed in those files. So let's say the first file was one of a rapist, and, uh, well, he had never raped anyone, but perhaps he had seen uh, a rape on television. Or maybe he had a violent thought, a few violent thoughts about women. Mm-hmm. So he would for- he would sit and forgive himself for the violence in him towards women, mm-hmm. using the form ho'oponopono huling. Ho'oponopono, I'm so sorry, I love you, please forgive me. Thank you for bringing this to my attention for transformation and healing. And he would just continue to work on himself throughout all those files. And the end result of that was everybody in the prison got rehabilitated in some way. Either they got the shackles off or they stopped using so many drugs or they went to a halfway house. Some of them went back into society. And um, so now Hugh Ling is going around the world teaching Ho'oponopono. And how I use it is... um, When I'm sitting with clients, I remember that everything that they're bringing to me is an aspect of myself, and whether or not it's an active aspect. So, for example, if someone is talking to me about an extramarital affair, I'm not having an extramarital affair, and I haven't for maybe 30 years. Yes. But I did. Yes. And so I sit and do to my younger self, "Pona pona, Patricia. I'm so sorry for the younger one in you that didn't have good boundaries around marriage. I'm sorry." I love you, please forgive me, thank you. So it gives me an opportunity
0: to forgive old wounds in me. In yourself. In myself. Wow. I think this opens the door um, to speak about the critic's critic. Um, You say the critic's critic is the place where much of our pain truly resides. Um, Could you speak to that?
1: Yes, I could. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I was just recently talking with my technical um, editor, midwife person, and uh, I was talking to him about how every time I meet someone, I think I should have a definition of what a love dog is. And instead, it's always changing. It's like mercury again. And uh, that I think I, sh- I-, I should know these things. I should be responding from my intellect. And so my, critics, my critic was saying, What's the matter with you? How come you're so. Why do you, can't you be more intellectual? Why don't you talk more from a clinical perspective? What's the matter with you? And the critic's critic is saying, um, Yeah, you should have gotten off this many years ago. You're teaching about this. What are you thinking? And so the critic's critic is like a double whammy. First we're self-critical, and then we're saying, and we should have already had it handled. Mm -hmm. So like, I should no longer be in body process because I've been working with this for 40 years. When do I get off it? Mm -hmm. That's the critic critic. Mm -hmm. The critic is, you got a lumpy tummy. The critic's critic is, what's the matter with you that you don't get off this? How can you have this unresolved material still? And it's the judgment of the emotions that's more painful than the emotions themselves. Wow. I see. To me, if you're grieving and you have a good cry, it is not painful. If you're saying, what is the matter with you? Why are you still grieving about this? Why don't you get off it? That is painful. But just openly grieving and honoring yourself while you're grieving, that is not painful. Or at least it is not to me.
0: We will go back to grief because it's a very important subject and it really features in your book. Um, But I would like to ask you about the spell. I would ask you to talk about what you call the spell. Okay, what a spell
1: is, is that when we're younger, we take a picture. It's like we're sitting there with a Kodak camera taking one of those instamatic pictures when something traumatic happens to us. And so, like, for example, what I was saying earlier about the death of my father, I took a picture of that, and that I have been running that picture up alongside my reality, or had been for years and years and years. So thinking that my relationships are going to end abruptly, over and over again. And then, of course, they did, because that was my expectation of relationship. So I was in a spell. My unconscious mind about that trauma was playing itself out over and over again, and So a spell is an unconscious state where one is in like a trance-like state and is not in the present moment. So to be out of a spell would mean in the present moment, well, I'm sitting here with you two lovely people. Uh, My husband's in the other room. We've been together 25 years. Um, He's not actively dying any more than you and I are. No one's going anywhere. Nothing urgent is occurring. And um, that doesn't mean that I might not... um, have a fear, again, that would bring that spell about my father back on through. And if it did, then again, I would use Ho'oponopono. Here comes an old memory. I love you, Patricia. I love you even when you're thinking your father is still dying. I love you even when you repeat that over and over again. Please forgive me. Thank you.
0: Now, uh, would you like to speak about uh, the front seat, the passenger seat,
1: yeah. Um, sure, yeah. yeah Okay, so in my book I've used the, uh, the a Volkswagen bug. I have a silver Volkswagen lo- bug. So I've used that as a model. And in the silver Volkswagen lo- bug, if you could imagine, uh, in the driver's seat is what I call your wisest um, most nurturing self, the one who knows. And in the right seat in the, the passenger seat is your support system whether that is intrinsic support, like that you meditate, or you um, pray, or you write affirmations, the things that you do for yourself to support yourself. And the extrinsic support system might be um, that you get a therapy session, you go to a 12-step meeting, you have these external things that are part of your support system, and that is what allows you to spend the most time in the back seat, I mean, in the front seat, so sorry, <laughs> so oponopono. Mm-hmm. And then in the um, middle of the car is the observer who's uh, looking around seeing, what. well, which seat are you in? And in the back seat is your unconscious mind, your critical parent, your wounded child, your critic's critic, basically your stuff. And uh, what happens is that when you're, when you're able to observe that you're coming from your back seat, you're criticizing yourself or someone else, for example. Once you notice that, then you have an opportunity to use some skills so that you have a choice about coming into the front seat. And um, many, many people think that what we're here doing is we're going to get rid of our back seat. You know, uh, I can't tell you the times I've spent 6000 or $8,000 on a training thinking I'll come out and then I won't have this human condition anymore. I won't have this back seat. Well, it never happens. Mm -hmm. And the reason it doesn't happen is because my backseat is something that I'm here to befriend, to honor, to own. It's part of my humanity. And I'm not here to get over it or get rid of it. I'm here to allow it to become part of me um, so that it can operate within me as more of a friend than an enemy.
0: What I uh, see in your book is that you share a lot of your own experience. So, in other words, as a healer, you heal through your own experience. And um, Yes, that's true. I also understand that um, that's very much what you do in therapy. If we go back to the Ohoponopono, mm-hmm. it is not the other's problem. Mm-hmm. It is your knowledge right. and feeling about right. that very thing. How does it how does it feel to be using your own life as a healing tool? Well, you know, as
1: I was writing the book, there were many times I'd be writing and then I'd say to myself, I can't believe you're going to put this on paper and you're going to put it out into the world. And, you know, it was scary and um, I worried about it, and I did some judgment of myself that I shouldn't be talking so much about myself. It should have more uh, cognitive understanding. And, and, uh. But the truth is, when I really look at my own learning, who I am touched by and who I am moved by is those who come from their heart with me, those who admit they don't have it handled, those who, tell me who, who are aware of their own story, whether they're telling me their story or not. Those are the teachers that I love. And so um, offering my own story has been really a wonderful thing. And it is a bit surprising to me because it's such a vulnerable book when people come to a first session and they have read the book and they already know me, Mm -hmm. and I don't know them. (laughs) So so it's something I hadn't expected. It's actually really lovely because it saves me time in terms of presenting ideas when they
0: already know me. Now, you are also a business coach. Mm -hmm. Um, You're a soul coach, Mm -hmm. that's for sure, Mm -hmm. and you're also a business coach. So I want to come back to the last question. What would you want to say to people about using their own life as a tool for their business, for making money? Okay, so
1: what I want to say about that is that um, when I am open-hearted and I'm clear, my business grows. And uh, when I am needing to do internal work uh, or I'm in my backseat and I haven't resolved it, that will impact the results of my business. It will slow down. And I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing. It just is what is. And so by doing one's own work, One's capacity to prosper in the business world is magnified. It's really genuinely magnified. And let me see if I can think about how that really happens. Well, the businesses that I'm most familiar with working with are those that are soul-driven businesses. So, in other words, they're not just doing business to make money. They're doing something that has meaning for them and offers a service to the planet, and they also want to make money and prosper. And so those are the businesses I work with. And when you have a soul-driven business, a soul-driven business, what is most important is, once again, we're back to matters of the soul, that you are addressing the matters of your own soul so that you can be present in your business. And um, I find that when I am really deeply connected and engaged in my soul work and internally aligned, then... It's pretty much I can go and uh, do a process like um, hike up a mountain, uh, dragging my unresolved issues up, do a process on top of the mountain and then come on back down. And uh, by doing that letting go of the past and the people that I used to work with, my, my business past and coming down in the present moment, literally by the time I'm home, the phone rings, uh, new people are coming in. So it just works to be integrous in your own
0: soul so that your business can manifest its results. And yet I will throw in a hard one here. There are many CEOs of banks right now Mm -hmm. who are making enormous amounts of money. And in my perception... Uh, this money has not grown out of their soul. Mm -mm. How do you...? Well, actually, that's not the kind of business I work
1: with. So, My first questions when I work with a business client is, what does this have to do with your soul? And helping them identify what their true purpose is and uh, what meaning their work really has for them. One of the things I do when we begin is help them discover their peak experience and then see if they're operating in that peak experience from their values and in terms of the bankers and what's going on in our world about that, um, I think one of the things the world is doing now is questioning the bankers about their integrity and about their about the place that they may be missing in Seoul. And so they're getting challenged as an industry right now by by the larger community, by the collective conscience, which I think is a good thing.
0: Well, this, in a strange way, leads me back to grief. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of grief for a lot of people at this time of transformation. And so I want to ask you about your your perception of grief and what uh, the healing power of grief.
1: Okay, so I really love grief. Now that sounds like an unusual statement. In fact, earlier today I was thinking perhaps I should write a book called you know how they always say misery loves company? Maybe I should say misery loves acceptance. So, so grief loves acceptance. Yes. And uh, and by the way, I don't think grief is misery. I think misery is not accepting your grief, fighting with your grief, um, making your grief wrong, refusing to let yourself have your grief. I think that becomes misery. Grief itself is a um, such a wellspring of emotion and vulnerability and truth and it really is a sacred place in my experience. I love when people come in here and they're grieving. In fact I had a woman in on Friday who was saying she didn't want to come in because her cat of 25 years is dying. And she knew that I had recently lost a beloved animal and so she didn't want to come and bring her grief. And I was like, "Wow, I'm so honored that you would come and bring your grief. please bring your grief. I would love to sit and be with you in your grief and honor my grief and there's nothing there's nothing I would rather do than spend my time being with you while you're grieving. Um, so the welcoming of grief is a um, it's just a sacred experience, and it's not that I haven't fought my grief to or avoided it and done uh." a variety of different addictive things so that I can see if I can get out of it. I'm just saying that beyond that, my grief is my friend, my my holy place.
0: Is grief also a sister of tenderness? Yes, grief is a sister of tenderness. Very good. I love how you brought that back around.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And speaking about grief and tenderness, talk to us about your dogs, your beloved dogs.
1: Okay, so... Um, I had a white golden retriever ma- named Grace there's a picture on on the wall here that someone painted for me with her in my arms and she was with me for 13 years and Grace became a both she and my next dog Jolie became um, invisible eternal service dogs when they died so you know like how blind people or handicapped folks have service dogs yes well I have psychic service dogs so right now <laughs> Right now, Jolie is sitting at my right, my second dog, who Mm -hmm. I also had 12 years, Mm -hmm. and Grace is sitting on my left side, Mm -hmm. and they give me input into my sessions. They help me hold the space. Their tenderness, their wisdom
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, feeds me. I consider them invisible, eternal service dogs. And uh, when Grace died, I literally thought I would die of it. I had so much grief, Mm -hmm. just profound, profound grief. And now this is maybe five years later, and I'm realizing only recently how beautiful that was, that I cared that deeply about her, and I still do. And I'm also still grieving the loss of Jolie. And at the same time, they're with me, but I miss the, I miss their bodies. You know, I'd like them to walk around the mm-hmm. corner. I'd mm-hmm. like to see, I'd like to see them again. Mm-hmm. Is what it is. And they don't have that form anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. I have no idea what your question was. I was just thinking about uh, how um, a, a three-year-old little girl mm-hmm. once came up to me and she said, I'm going to miss me when I'm dyed <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah, she will miss her when she's dyed Greatest pieces of yeah. wisdom yeah. I've yeah. ever heard. Yeah. In your book, Becoming a Love Dog, you speak about... Effortlessness as inspiration. I speak about effortlessness versus inspiration. Oh, good. Okay. Uh huh. Uh
1: huh. Yeah. You want me to talk about that? Yes, a I'd like yeah. that. Okay. So there is one way of getting things done, which is um, one of my oldest and most favorite ways, which is agendizing, uh, pushing, trying hard, um, making a. Uh, um, A linear checklist, a to-do list, and then um, holding it with urgency. And, by the way, I'm not saying I have that pattern completely handled. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it shows up. This urgency thing shows up. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden I'll realize, like, for example, um, on Friday I was talking with a couple in California who was in a crisis, and I noticed I was gripping the phone. Uh, um, And that was me thinking, I have to try really hard because their marriage is in crisis. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm saying, "Well, I'm talking, honey, relax. Just hold this phone lightly. And you know, I could actually feel the couple relaxing as I relaxed my grip. And then I'm going to talk about effortlessness. So then, just coming from the place of being with them and hearing them, just calmly hearing them and saying ho'oponopono to myself about the parts in relationship that their relationship was bringing up in me. About how she was saying about he just isn't really there for her. And she was saying and he isn't either. And um, that place in me that feels like my husband isn't sometimes there for me or I'm not. And working with that. um, So then it became a kind of an effortless thing between us. And their marriage could come back to a place of uh, neutrality and kindness. um, Because it had entered a place of effortlessness. One more thing I want to talk about. I am not going to try to sell this book. I'm not trying to sell it. I haven't tried to sell it. I'm not going to try to sell it. Okay. Let's it's okay with me. That. It's okay with me if it sells or it doesn't. And um I think it should just take itself out into the world and have a wonderful time with whoever would like to read it. And <laughs> and um and that's not to say that the book isn't going out into the world. It's just that I'm not trying. I'm not putting effort into it. And if something comes to me as a way to, bring the, as to, a way to make the offering in, in, of the book, then I will do that. For example, your offer to do the podcast. That came out of our connection with one another. And it was lovely, but I didn't try to make it happen. That's it right. just happened. That's right. So effortlessness is a place where you're not trying, but you are opening, you are connected You are in tune with the moment. You are allowing things to unfold. And I'm saying I'm not perfect at effortlessness. But I do do what I can do to to burn my We Try Harder button. And instead put a button on that says something more like, easy does
0: it. Ah, We Try Harder button, I get it. Yeah. 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 I see. Now, uh, where can we get this book? It's available both at Amazon.com,
1: www.amazon.com, and it's available at www.barnesandnoble.com.
0: Okay. And also, I want to mention your website, which is www.becomingalovedog.com. Thank you. Patricia, we have a little more time and um, let's talk about the blessed core of loneliness Um, Mm -hmm. many people are afraid of loneliness Mm -hmm. and um, that may trigger actions that could be less than beneficial Um, is loneliness Another Sister of Tenderness. It is. Yeah, it is. You're doing great
1: with this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm learning more about the book as you're interviewing me. Thank you. Good. Uh, So, The Blessing of Core Loneliness. Now, this was the chapter where I said, Are you sure you're going to put this out into the world like this? This raw? Are you sure you want to be doing this? And uh, the answer I got back was, Yes, absolutely. I do want to be doing it. And uh, in my experience running away from loneliness, avoiding loneliness, fighting with loneliness, using to avoid loneliness, you know, eating more food or having more alcohol or watching more television. Not that those are always avoidance of loneliness, but oh. they sometimes are. Right. Is way more painful than just saying, I'm lonely, I'm so lonely, I have, an, I have a neon side on my forehead that says loneliness. And you know, I do have a few dear friends in the world who sometimes I just simply call up and say, I'm so lonely. I'm just really lonely. I'm, I'm lonely in every cell in my body. I don't remember ever not being lonely. And that feels lovely to me. It feels honest. And so I think even by writing that chapter on using it as a blessing, something got integrated. Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of me now that is fighting with loneliness. I just think it's part of us. I think it's a natural part of being alive. Um, and there is a Hafiz poem where he says... Uh, Loneliness, let it cut you more deeply. I might have even written it in the book. Don't know for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm taking a look.
1: It cuts, yeah, that it cuts so deeply. I woke up lonely this morning, and my first thought after that was, okay, let it cut you more deeply. Don't try to make it go away. Don't get up and move. Don't try to get something done. Let's just be here and allow for loneliness. Let's not even question where it's coming from. Let's just be lonely for a while.
0: How soothing, how kind. Mm-hmm. Patricia Flesh, what about fear? Well, fear a sister
1: too of tenderness fear um I would say I have more spiritual and emotional integration of grief and loneliness than I do of fear um fear's scary yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh. Um, what is helpful to me is sometimes working with myself around the topic of, well, how could you not be afraid? Like, for example, in our world right now, and with the economic downturns that most of us have been facing in some way, how could you not be afraid? Fear is going to be part of what we walk with, and I believe that by allowing for fear, then we're less likely to act it out, less likely to create more war or disharmony or... Adversity, if we can own that we're afraid. And um, I just feel like that is a, a lifetime's work to keep to coming to terms with fear.
0: And I have much more work to do on that topic. You spoke about not um, not promoting this book, uh, just letting this book make its way in the world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Where does that come from in you?
1: Well, for one thing, it comes out from, from uh, trying so hard for most of my life, nearly killing myself. Um, when it was time for me to sell things in the past, like when I was 30 or 40, I would go into used car salesman mode, arm wrestle people if I needed to, you know. and I'm, I'm, I want to release any judgment of myself. I didn't know how to do it any other way. I didn't know how to get results okay. from a position of ease mm-hmm. then. I would have done it another way if I knew how. And I did get results that way. However, it hurt my heart, and I'm sure it hurt their hearts too. And uh, now I'm just not willing to hurt my heart, and I'm not willing to hurt anybody else's heart either. So, um, And by the way, I don't, I don't think that promotion is a, a good or a bad thing. It's just that I would like things to happen naturally and progressively as opposed to making them happen allowing them to happen. I was saying to my friend earlier today well I might do a radio campaign you know where I find out which are the progressive talk radios that would like a topic that's not religious but spiritual in nature and we might screen for that but not now because I don't feel I don't feel called to do that The idea is kind of coming through but I don't feel called. And, but what I do feel called to do is I realize, well, I might want to mentor someone younger, maybe someone who's 40 and who would like to have a part-time position who I might teach how to do that radio thing, and that might be really fun for me. And so that might happen because that's what inspires me. Calling all the radio stations myself, if, I, if that's what I need to do, I'm not going to do that.
0: So, um, I want to put out an invitation I want to, well, I want to say this is Joanna Harcourt-Smith inviting the friends of Future Primitive to buy this book and then lend it to each other. And it's called Becoming a Love Dog, From Emptiness to Tenderness by Patricia Flash. We are coming around here with our conversation and um, so I would like to ask you, Will you mentioned that you would write another book. Perhaps mm-hmm. you'd like to speak about that. And also take your time and see if there is some things you'd like to add to what we have walked through together.
1: There's one thing that I'm thinking of right now, which is that the real reason I wrote this book is because I know that there are other people out there like me who have a lot of depth, and all they've really known how to do is take that to therapy and um, think that it is um, something wrong with them. And um, so the real reason of writing the Love Dog book, in my heart of hearts, was to touch other love dogs who have a great deal of depth, and they might be having therapy and they might not, but there's nothing wrong with them if they have depth and they're grieving and they're sad and they're lonely and they're frightened and they're uh, passionate and excited and alive, uh, they're the full range. And so I wanted to touch people who didn't know what to call themselves and have been going around the world feeling kind of weird. Like, what's going on? I mean, I must be crazy, that kind of thing. No, really, no, you just have a, a heart that has a full range. And so I wanted to touch those people. And what was the other question? But well, the other
0: question is your thoughts in oh, the second closing book. for now. Oh, okay. You ask about the second book. Yes, That's I asked right. about the second book. That's right.
1: Um, what I'm doing about the second book right now is merely brainstorming about how could I make it effortless. You know, what ways might I do it that would feel easy and exciting? And, uh, in fact, I just spent the hour before being with you talking with my partner on how we would do that having learned from the first book, which sometimes felt like we were birthing an elephant. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, is there another way to have a, an easier labor here? Um, and I'm not ready even to commit to uh, writing the second book, but I am... excitement starting to build in me. And so, and also I want to give Becoming a Love Dog a chance to finish being born sure, sure. and to take it in, because there's a lot for me to receive about it just bringing that book into the world, I'm really receiving a lot of benefit from what people say to me when they read it and how they feel and how it touches them. And I want to be emotionally available for that instead of being busy having a second baby.
0: Right, right. Okay, anything else you'd like to say in closing, Patricia?
1: Yeah, I'd just like to close with saying one's whole capacity to learn how to welcome our feelings and to be with ourselves, in my opinion, is really what we are doing here. And if that describes you, then you are a love dog. And thank you so much, Joanna. It's been lovely. Thank you, Patricia.